exoplanets, itches, and bovine polarity. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. We've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly once again podcast where I answer questions about science, faith, and life. I apologize for a few weeks of uh, dead air and downtime. Had a little bit of a medical incident that I've been recovering from. We'll talk about that more after the break, but I'm excited to be back hosting the show. We've got some great questions this week, so uh, let's get it started. So my email inbox has been mobbed (laughs) because some of you uh, listen to the show, but you don't follow me on Twitter or on Facebook, which is fine. Uh, That's not a social media plug, but that means you didn't know why the show has been off the air, uh, whereas folks that follow me on social media uh, got the lowdown. I have been on tour, as you know. And uh, as I got towards the end of a small string of dates, um, I had a, an incident. I had some stroke-like symptoms, had difficulty seeing, difficulty speaking, really, really intense headache, and ended up going to the hospital and uh, staying overnight there. And uh, they thought I, I had a stroke from the early uh, testing with the with the CAT scan. And as they did a lot more... Uh, intense testing, including a, an MRI. Uh, looks like it was not a stroke, so yay, not a stroke. Uh, but it seems like all the traveling I've been doing with a uh, existing brain injury um, essentially got me into kind of a chronic migraine situation. And basically, uh, I was in a migraine I never got out of for months. And the episodes were daily and getting more severe. Uh, so they ended up putting me on medical rest. So I wasn't allowed to work at all, uh, which was difficult for me. <laughs> you know, just rest, no traveling. And I ended up missing uh, the BioLogos event, which was one of the events I was the most excited about doing this year, honestly. So that was really tough to miss that event. Now I'm I'm back. I'm on some medication that uh, is helping the headaches. Uh, but what I've I've been uh, encouraged to do by my neurologist and my doctor is slow down my travel schedule, and when I travel, not try to um, turn around and do a show as soon as I get back. So what we'll do from now on is sometimes when I have these more regular travel events. We'll take those weeks off of the show, or maybe we'll do like a highlight reel. I'm not sure what that's going to look like yet. Honestly, today is is kind of my first day back doing Ask Science Mike stuff. But show's back. I'm okay. I've just got to take it easier. I have found in general, I just don't have the mental stamina that I did before I fell off of a motorcycle. So like in the morning... I'm I'm fully alert. I'm fully me. And as the day goes on, I get foggier and fuzzier. 
if, especially when I work. So I've got to, I guess, take more frequent breaks. I don't know. It doesn't come naturally to me. I'm kind of a intense working kind of person, intense studying. And frustratingly, I haven't found my meditative practice to be particularly restorative. Uh, it doesn't like refill the, you know, the hourglass in my skull in terms of having good focus or the ability to work. So uh, I'll just be pacing things differently, I guess. But for now, shows back, shows weekly. I don't have a ton of travel over the summer. So that's going to be helpful. Uh, speaking of travel, here's my upcoming uh, dates. Uh, May 13th, I will be at Christ Church in Greenwich, Connecticut. Really excited about that one. Uh, that's going to be a great event. And then we have uh Three gatherings, the liturgist gathering coming up, uh, September 15th and 16th in Los Angeles. Uh, tickets go on sale April 18th for the public for that. They're on sale now for the liturgist patrons on Patreon. Uh, October 6th and 7th will be Boston for the liturgist gathering. October 27th and 28th will be the liturgist gathering in Seattle. Okay, so if you'd like to come to the Liturgist Gathering, uh, those are the dates. You can learn more at theliturgistgathering.com. October 21st, I'll be at the Rubicon Conference in Dublin, Ireland. Really, really excited about that. Uh, I've followed uh, what they've been doing for a while, so I'm excited to go get to be a part of that. Uh, This has been long in the works and really excited that it's finally happening. Uh, while I'm over there, I'm going to do a small uh, UK tour of Ask Science Mike to support Finding God in the Waves in its UK release. There is one. I don't know if you know that. There is a UK release of the book. And uh, we're already confirmed in London for an Ask Science Mike, so more details coming about that. But we'd like to do a couple more stops. So if you'd like to get an Ask Science Mike in your city, in uh, anywhere in the UK. Uh, this is it's never been easier, especially if you're in Glasgow, Edinburgh, Birmingham, or Manchester. It's going to be so easy to get me there uh, in that little time frame. But you want to go ahead and act now. So go to uh, AskScienceMike.com, and there's a Book Mike button uh, in the menu bar or in the little menu if you're on mobile. And click that, and it'll take you to Chafee Management, who handles my speaking. Just get in touch with them, fill out the form, and uh, and they'll talk to you about hosting an Ask Science Mike event in the UK. So we'll be doing the Republic of Ireland and the UK, both in one trip. Really, really exciting. Uh, and so that's all the, the events coming up uh, that's on the calendar. I've got a couple more that uh, aren't publicly advertised. Uh, but those will be the ones that you can come see me at. So uh, let's answer some questions about science and faith. Hi, Mike. This is Hannah. I have a question about itching. Why do I get a random itch sometimes, and it seems for no reason? I'd love to know the science behind that. Thanks so much. Hannah, as I uh, researched an answer to this question, Itches are far more complex than I was previously aware. I thought I had a good handle on the biological components of an itch. 
Uh, but I, I was totally wrong. Itches are incredibly complex and sophisticated phenomenon. Uh, we typically understand that an itch occurs uh, when you have an irritating but not painful stimulus at the dermis. Like think about you know, a small bug crawling on your skin. That's going to be an itch-inducing phenomenon. It can also be caused by brushing against something. It can be caused by certain chemical irritants, like some plants have an oil that will irritate your skin and cause it to itch. Um, And we've known for a while that both pain and itches are transmitted via a particular type of neuron that are TRPV1 expressing. So TRPV1 expressing neurons uh, let you feel pain and make you itch. And we've learned that even though itches and pain travel along the same neuron, uh, they're still different. They're not just like different intensities of the same signal because itches or most itches come from neuropeptide natriolic polypeptide B or NPPB which is released in response to an itch stimulus. That's why you feel itchy and why you don't feel pain. And and learning that allowed us to engineer mice who can feel pain but don't ever uh, itch. Isn't that interesting? We don't understand why scratching an itch is so gratifying. I I haven't seen any literature that explains uh, what chemical action, what neurotransmitter, what phenomenon may be responsible for why it feels good to scratch an itch. Of course, itching makes a lot of sense from an evolutionary sense, right? Bug bites uh, often follow a bug crawling on the skin. And so this itch says, pay attention, maybe scratch. If you scratch, you might push the bug away or crush them and avoid a bite. Uh, But that doesn't explain kind of random itches or the contagious itches that we would consider more psychosomatic, right? Uh, That that are free of a particular stimulus to the dermis. Uh, And again, I didn't see any literature that explained those as a distinct phenomenon. Uh, But even as I'm answering this question, talking about itching, I have just started to itch all over my head. My scalp itches, my arms itch right now, my uh, ankle itches. Um, And so when we think about itching or we see someone else scratching, that can often cause us to itch as well. Uh, Now, this may be like a two-way phenomenon where we think about itching and then we scan our body more closely and then these neurons uh, maybe express in PPB or release NPPB and make us itch? Uh, I'm not sure. But it does make a lot of sense why itching would be contagious or why we would have sort of phantom or random itches. There's very little penalty for a false positive on an itch, right? If I think I might need to scratch and scratch, I don't really do any harm to myself. I don't spend a lot of energy. Um, But if, if I ignore a stimulus that should cause an itch, uh, that could be harmful, right? I don't notice bugs on me. And it also makes sense that itching is kind of contagious. If I see a human scratching nearby, there's a decent chance that human uh, may allow me to get a similar 
uh, itching vector like a bug you know if it's if it's uh, mites or lice those those tend to propagate fairly well in human populations so contagious itching makes a lot of sense but the literature I saw said that such itches may not involve the same uh, in PPB at all that, that it may be a completely distinct phenomenon that we don't understand yet <laughs> so you're pushing the scientific frontier with your question about phantom or random itches. Maybe there's just a little bit of stimulus, but I don't know. Again, I'm just sitting here uh, scratching myself like crazy just by answering a question about itches. Our next question came in via email, and it reads, Hi, Mike. My husband and I were driving past a field of grazing cows, and my husband totally flipped out. All the cows were facing the same direction. Truthfully, it was creepy. After we determined that we were not in a horror movie, I looked it up online and found that cows have a sensitivity to the Earth's magnetic fields, which leads them to align themselves in a north-south direction while grazing and resting. Seriously, is that true? And if so, what evolutionary benefit Uh, does this trait have for cows? Do other animals do this? How have I never noticed this before? Are they finding God in the magnetic waves? My husband added that part. Thanks so much, Sarah Mack. Okay, full disclosure, this question made it through the system on its own. I uh, I didn't game the system, but I was thrilled to see a question from Sarah Mack. She's a good friend of mine and an incredibly talented uh, singer and songwriter and uh, performs with a group called the Sarah Mack Band. So I would encourage you to get on your music platform of choice and check out the Sarah Mack Band uh, as soon as humanly possible. Honestly, one of the most powerful, beautiful voices I've ever heard and an incredibly talented lyricist to boot. Anyway, so... Back to the question about magnetic cows. Uh, there's lots and lots of animals that show sensitivity or awareness of magnetic fields, and that can be stuff as small as bacteria, uh, but we do see it also in worms that don't necessarily have all that sophisticated a nervous system. But then on the larger or more elaborate uh, nervous system level, we certainly see it in birds, and we see it, of course, in cow and deer. It's fascinating. Why would evolution uh, have favored this adaptation? Well, uh, navigation. You can navigate via sunlight. Uh, The sun rises and sets in a particular pattern, but that would require some awareness of, of what time of day it is in order to navigate that way. And at night, navigating by starlight means you have to understand a very sophisticated relationship between different stellar bodies. It requires a lot of visual acuity. It requires the ability to uh, build a map of the stars in your brain somehow. Uh, So it turns out the magnets are a pretty consistent system uh, for navigation. So animals that migrate over long distances, uh, this is very, very useful Uh, So evolution would certainly reward it. Now, cows, 
domesticated though they are, don't have any particular need to navigate long distances, but their ancestors certainly did, right? Uh, so that's where that comes from. Now, here's here's what's uh, interesting. We, we notice that cows uh, have a magnetoreception, that's what we call that, uh, in a study that was aimed at seeing if humans... <laughs> were magnetoreceptive by examining campgrounds and the alignment of tents. And it uh, turns out to be very frustrating and difficult. Humans tend to camp in places that are under tree canopy. And this study was being done via satellite imagery. But when we noticed, by we, I mean humanity, when the, the people conducting the study noticed that there are pastures nearby, they noticed cows were all facing the same direction, which then shifted the direction of the study and the research. And they found really consistently that cows do, in fact, align themselves in north-south directions. So when we determine animals have magnetoreception, that's the method. We do this sort of direct observation of a behavior related to magnetic north. Uh, But we don't actually know what sensory organ allows an organism to be magnetoreceptive. That's still a mystery. This makes a lot of sense. It could be a very small organ. Brains are large. And uh, so we haven't yet sort of found what the mechanism of magnetoreceptivity is. Is it an organ? Is it a more pervasive thing across uh, more cells and systems in a body? We don't know. Uh, but the fact is we do observe the beho- phenomenon, and uh, a cow is a pretty good compass. Hey, Science Mike. A couple weeks ago, NASA released a statement that they had found seven potentially habitable planets, or exoplanets, surrounding a dwarf star named TRAPPIST-1, about 40 million light years away from Earth. I was wondering if you could... Uh, kind of give your take on what the implications would be of multiple planets near each other, potentially having life, maybe even intelligent life. What would it be like for a planet looking up at another planet as if it were our own moon, uh, both, uh, both planets hosting life? I know that's a little bit too theoretical. So let me ask a question that is maybe a little more substantial in addition to that. When do you think we'll have the technology available to really dive deeper into whether or not these planets are habitable? I've read some things about a telescope uh, that will be available to us in about two years that might be able to look into truly how habitable these planets might be. Uh, I was wondering if you could elaborate on that and other technologies that are coming down the road and maybe uh, looking into our neighbors among the stars and, and whether or not there might be life. Thanks, Mike. Man, this is like the most uh, science questions we've had on the show in a long time. <laughs> so, so much fun. <laughs> these these are easier questions to answer than some of the, the really intense life questions that get sent in. Yeah, this is a really fascinating finding with uh, TRAPPIST-1 um, and these multiple planets orbiting a star. Now, what would that look like if... Several of these planets had intelligent life on them from a local level. Well, first of all, when you look up at a planet in the night sky, think less about looking at the moon and more about looking at you know Mars or Venus. Those are two planets 
that are in the habitable zone uh, around our star, right? And they're just little points of light in the sky. So at first, uh, as civilizations emerge, it, it wouldn't be any different than what it's like here. But as these civilizations uh, got into an astronomical age, started to examine the sky and realize there were other planets in their system, if you had civilizations on two planets at the same time, the question, are we alone in the universe, would be much, much, much easier to answer. We probably could have answered it, you know, in the days of uh, following Galileo. And certainly, in once we got into the radio age, uh, because it'd be really easy to send signs of life between these planets. We would notice, uh, you know, the lights of a city on another world. Now, this assumes both civilizations uh, can see visible light, which may or may not even be true at all, depending on how the organisms evolved. But basically, civilizations, as far as we know, the one we're aware of, tend to send signals out into space that we exist. Look at the Earth uh, from space at night. And if you can resolve the Earth with any detail, which you certainly could from Mars or Venus, you would see the cities uh, along its surface. If you tuned into radio, you would get these very obviously um, non-natural, artificial radio signals. So you would imagine that if there is life on a couple of planets, intelligent life with civilization, uh, they know they're not alone in the universe. They've learned to communicate. They've maybe shared notes. They've maybe even voyaged to each other's planets and met, right? If you knew there was a civilization on the other planet that would really prioritize space research as being important in a way that uh, maybe the, the looking for microbial life in our solar system doesn't really seem to excite world governments. Uh, so, you know, we would imagine that uh, would be a possible outcome. Or the planets go to war. <laughs> which would be incredibly expensive, right? Because they're just entering the space age and really expensive to throw things to the orbits of other planets in your solar system. So I'm not sure how an interplanetary war would look, honestly, unless they've learned to manipulate um, asteroids and they just fling asteroids at each other and then that's totally mutually assured destruction. So kind of the Cold War played out on an interplanetary scale, which is kind of depressing. So <laughs> let's that's all hugely speculative. Everything I said is massively speculative. We have no idea what non-Earth-based life could be like because we have absolutely no data. No data. Zero non-Earth life has been discovered by us in the universe so far. So let's talk a little bit about how we find exoplanets today and how we learn about them. And hopefully that will tell us when we might have a better idea uh, when planets are habitable. So uh, the OG way of uh, looking for planets is the radial velocity method. And there we're looking at the Doppler shift that's caused by stars wobbling as planets orbit them, okay? So think about that. We actually cause our sun to wobble a little bit as the Earth orbits it, right? And so when you look at the 
Doppler wobbling effect of a star, you can do math. You can figure out how many planets there are uh, and, and what their minimum mass is orbiting a given star. And uh, that was the only way we could find planets before the Kepler Space Telescope. So we didn't find very many planets uh, before Kepler. Uh, and, it, and that technique, again, it tells you very little about the planet. just establishes a minimum mass. That's it. Uh, and then a more sophisticated technique is transit photometry. And here's where we look at a dip in a star's brightness as a planet passes between the distant star and the observing telescope. And this actually can tell us about the planet's atmosphere, its mass, and its distance from the star using uh, spectronomy, where we're looking at the, the spectrum of the light and the gaps in the spectrum that comes to us as the planet. Uh, when I say transit, it means the planet's passing between us and that distant star, which would not be visible with the naked eye whatsoever. Uh, requires a space-based telescope. And this only works when the orbits are edge-on, meaning at some point this planet passes between the star and Earth, and depending on the, the tilt relative to us of the orbital plane, that may never happen. And this is the technique that allowed the Kepler Space Telescope to find so many exoplanets, and how we know more about those planets than older finds using radial velocity. Now there's some other techniques that are quite sophisticated but aren't useful nearly as often. Uh, one is called microlensing, uh, where you use the gravitational well of an intermediate body to focus light on a more distant system. Obviously that only works in very specific circumstances. And then occasionally uh, we can directly image a planet. That happens if you have a a very near, very dim star with a very large planet um, that has happened. I, I only know of that happening once. Maybe it's happened more than once, but I'm only aware of one instance where we've direct imaged a um, exoplanet. So again, an exoplanet is a planet not in our solar system. I probably should have explained that for the non-astronomy nerds listening in the audience. So, radial velocity and transit photometry are our primary techniques. So, what's next? The James Webb Space Telescope. This is going to be a really massive infrared telescope that will have uh, a hood blocking the sun, blocking the light of Earth. It's going to give it a very clear view of the sky. And it's going to be at uh, Lagrange Point 2, L2. Those are points where... Gravity in a two-body system cancels out, basically, a million miles from the Earth. So it's going to be in deep space. It's not going to be in low Earth orbit, right? It's technically going to be in orbit uh, around the Sun, and it's going to stay coincident with the Earth because it's going to be a Lagrange point. Otherwise, uh, it, its orbital period would be different than ours. Uh, so that scope, because it's infrared and its size, will have greater sensitivity when we uh, execute transit photometry, and we would hope then we could learn more about planets, learn about smaller planets. It's, it's, it's going to be more of the same with Kepler, just greater sensitivity, and that should tell us a bit more about these planets. And then we would also look for uh, other cues. Hopefully if we can 
start to see how many moons a planet might have. We understand in our case, our large moon has helped uh, life on Earth evolve because it stabilized our tidal periods, stabilized our climate. The moon has been very helpful there. But this is this is difficult science, and it's extremely expensive uh, to build the kind of hardware and man that hardware with scientists and researchers to do this kind of work. And uh, it depends on how devoted our global civilizations are to space exploration to when we'll have the technology to be able to truly verify the habitability of exoplanets both near and distant from our sun. Okay, our last question came in via email, and it reads, I am in the middle of a crisis that has lasted approximately 36 of my 44 years of life, which doesn't sound like an emergency, although it often feels like one. I just read your book, Finding God in the Waves, And I want to say thank you for including the part about God speaking to you at that conference. It resonated with me. My story is different than yours, and yet at its core, it's quite similar. We face the same questions, we're devastated when we reach the same conclusions, and we're able to eventually bypass our logical conclusions because God spoke to us directly. However, I have never felt comfortable in church. I am a scientist, not a Christian. The Bible never made sense to me or helped me find God. So although I was brought up around Christianity, my discoveries of the inconsistencies in the Bible when I was only in the third grade has meant I have had issues with the Bible almost my entire life. I struggled and searched for God throughout the years, and two years ago he spoke to me, much like he did you. Four words, spoken to me when I was alone, at long last revealed God's existence to me and changed me at a very deep level. Here's my question, though. Why did you interpret the voice as Jesus, not another non-Christian God? Is it just because that is what your family taught you and your community believes? Is it because... You used to be a Christian, and your wife, Jenny, still believes in Jesus. Nothing in my experience has convinced me that Jesus is real or that the voice I heard belonged to a God associated with any particular religion. God's existence was made very clear, but his identity remains hidden from me. I found God but I'm still lacking religion or the community of a church. Okay, fascinating question. Uh, First of all, you describe this as a crisis, and the language you're using to describe this will dramatically color your experience, right? So let's step away from the crisis depiction of... uh, your exploration of faith and spirituality, and maybe think of it as a journey or an awakening or a discovery and approach it with an inquisitive mind, an open heart, uh, maybe even a thrill. Life can be pretty boring uh, and pretty traumatic. Most of the things we deal with are paying bills and mortgages and 
uh, a 24-hour news cycle that's increasingly depressing, and you have what? You've experienced a moment with the divine. Sounds like you've had a mystical experience. You said that it deeply changed you, and that's one of the characteristic descriptions of a mystical experience. So just be grateful for that moment uh, and leave it at that maybe for a while. Just think about the beauty of that moment. Think about how it changed how you see the world. Now, you did say that God's existence was made clear, but his identity remains hidden from me. By assigning a male gendered pronoun to God, you're actually placing God within religious traditions already. <laughs> right? I mean, that's the, the assumption that this voice was a male voice, that it represented a male God, um, that that does you're you're not talking about a completely divorced from religion's symbolism or imagery, God there. Um, now, in terms of why, when I heard a voice, why I ascribed it to Jesus, is because the message from that voice was particular. I was there when you were eight, and I'm here now. Okay. The God that was there for me when I was eight was Jesus. It was Jesus I prayed to out in the trees at the edge of the playground hiding from bullies. So I ascribed that voice to Jesus specifically because of the content of the message. And so I'm guessing whatever you heard from God uh, was less distinctly attached to any particular religious imagery. Here's the deal. I'm a terrible person to ask, like, why should I believe in Jesus particular? Why should I be a Christian? Why should that be my practice of faith? I don't know why it should be your practice of faith. I only know why it is mine. Because for me, my connection to the divine, my awareness of God has always happened through the name of Jesus, the identity of God to me, the reconciliation happens through the Christ as incarnate in Jesus. That's it. That's it. That, that's my whole way of believing, reason for believing. Now, of course, you know, uh, don't let the inconsistencies in the Bible chase you away from Christianity. Uh, I think a, a better read of the Bible would celebrate its inconsistencies as a library of books written by different authors. Uh, if you haven't read any of Pete Inns' books on the topic, I recommend all of them. Um, I think probably my favorite is The Bible Tells Me So. Uh, you could check out Biblical Literalism, A Gentile Heresy by John Shelby Spong. Uh, coming out soon is a book by Rob Bell called What is the Bible? It's fantastic. Uh, so if, if, if the Bible's what's holding you back, those books can help help you read the Bible better. The Bible is a, is a fantastic book of ancient wisdom and spiritual guidance, uh, a library of books, really. It is not a memo from God, so that's going to cause confusion there. But if, if you feel connected to God without any particular religion, uh, or church, that's fine. If you're longing for a community, 
church makes a good one, but they do tend to be very focused on a Christ-centered expression of the Spirit, of the divine. Uh, You could check out a Unitary Universalist church if you'd like something that is uh, less tied to a particular practice. Uh, The Baha'i also have a very inclusive approach to spirituality and religion. They view, you know, all the world's major religions as expressions of uh, the divine, as valid uh, revelations. Uh, So there's a lot of options out there, uh, but you've asked a Christian. Uh, I am a Christian, although I acknowledge the, the beauty and truth of all religions. And I can only tell you that I only find God through Jesus, but that's just that's just me. That could absolutely be cultural. That could absolutely be because of my family. But that's part of uh, part of knowing God. We're a social mammal. We have a social consciousness. So of course, social structures are going to play a role in the way that we know and experience the divine, the ultimate reality, the ground of being, the source of all will inevitably be understood not only through how we see the world but how our our community sees it because how we see the world is a function of how our community sees the world. So here's what I would say. Just celebrate that moment with the divine and then find a community, if you desire, where you can explore that experience more deeply and non-dogmatically and non-judgmentally and without a culture war. The gift you had of experiencing God, I think it's, it's best if allowed to transform you into a person who helps others. But I believe that because I understand God through Christ who was broken and poured out for the world. Wow, is it good to be back. I have missed all of you. Uh, I'm going to be getting on Facebook and Twitter more often, although not as often as I used to. Um, I'll be releasing shows regularly again. So send in your questions to asksciencemike.com. You can send in a question, uh, type it out, and send in a form, or you can record a question and uh, and h- hear your voice on the program. I will tell you, you have a way better shot of getting on the program if you record a voice question than if you uh, type out a question just because we get a lot more uh, written questions every week and we have a 50-50 share of questions that go on the show because I like the recorded questions. Um, Also, thanks to our patrons, the people who donate every month to make this show possible, they picked out the questions for the show this week and and every week that's not a live show. Uh, So really appreciate them. If you'd like to be a part of that crew, go to AskScienceMike.com and click the Patreon button. Uh, You can learn more about being involved with the program on that level. Uh, Ask Science Mike is produced by Greg Nordeen. Thank you so much for that, Greg. Pre-production is handled by Andrew Galucky, and the Ask Science Mike theme song was written by Jeb Bodiford. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll talk to you next week.